Welcome to Undercurrents Unveiled, the Marine Hose Cartel Antitrust Odyssey, brought to you by the Antitrust Section of the New York State Bar Association. Undercurrents Unveiled takes you on a four-episode journey through the investigation, prosecution and defense, and follow-on litigation surrounding the high-profile cartel by the lawyers involved. Now, prepare to be entertained while gaining valuable insights into the legal battles that unfolded beneath the surface of this remarkable case. Welcome to episode two of Undercurrents Unveiled. My name is Natalie Pita, and I'll be your host for today's episode, Accountability on the Dock, Courtroom Drama and Verdict. Today, we'll step into the courtroom as we recount the dramatic proceedings and legal battles surrounding the Marine Hose prosecution and defense. We invite you to follow the case's twists and turns, delve into discovery-related issues and the pursuit of individual accountability, and experience the climactic moments of the court case as told by the lawyers at the tables. I'm excited to introduce our speakers for today, David Gerger, David Marcus, James Muchnick, and Mark Rossman. David Gerger is the founder of his own firm, Gerger, Hennessy & Martin. He also spent several years as, a, as an assistant federal public defender. David Marcus is a name partner at Marcus Moss, and he also has experience as a federal public defender. David is no stranger to podcasts, as he hosts his own podcast for the defense. David and David worked on the acquittal of Francesco Scaglia, a sales manager at Manuli Rubber Industries, who was prosecuted as part of the Marine Hose Cartel. Mark Rossman is a partner with Wilson Sincini. Before that, he served for two decades as a prosecutor and assistant section chief for the DOJ antitrust section. Mark was the supervisor on the ground in Houston for the taping of the Marine Hose conspiratorial meeting and the arrests the following day. He served as the lead prosecutor for the DOJ in the trial of Val Northcutt and Francesco Scaglia in Florida opposite David Gerger and David Marcus. James Smutchnik is a partner at Kirkland & Ellis. Prior to moving into private practice, he spent nearly a decade as a trial attorney for the DOJ Antitrust Division. His work for the division was featured in the book and major motion picture, The Informant. Jim represented Maceo Hioki, former general manager with Bridgestone, in the Marine Hose Cartel investigation. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. In our last episode, we talked a lot about the origins of the Marine Hose, uh, Marine Hose Conspiracy, but Mark, I know you were heavily involved in the start of this case, but is there anything about the start of the case that you can share with us before we dive into the other topics we have planned for this episode? Sure, and uh, thank you for, for having me, Natalie. Um, I'm Mark Rossman, and yeah, you know, at the, the outset of the case, I think uh, people might find it interesting that... Um, the case wasn't about marine hose. It was actually about a different marine product. I'll call it a marine widget. And the staff on the case at the DOJ was interviewing a witness about these marine widgets and had no idea about marine hose, none whatsoever. But in the course of this interview with the witness, the witness was going on a bit. The witness was getting you know, a bit impatient. And he said to the DOJ attorneys, he said, guys, you know, I, I, I don't understand why you're asking me all these questions about these marine widgets. That's nothing in comparison to marine hose. The staff had no idea about marine hose at that point, but they feigned, they feigned knowledge of, uh, of, you know, uh, of that topic. And they, they said something to the witness like, well, we're going to get to that, sir. You know, just you wait. We'll get to that in due time. And eventually they did. Uh, and he told them that, hey, there was this long running, you know, decades long running conspiracy and he wasn't he wasn't intimately involved, but he knew of it. And that was how that was how the, the staff and the DOJ first learned, first learned of it. And one thing I tell clients now that I'm on the defense side is, you know, if DOJ, if you're aware of them investigating in one product or something that's adjacent to to your business, you need to be on alert. You need to be cautious because all it takes is one person to kind of let things slip like that. And, and, and it's really unpredictable where, where the case can go. But that was how, that was actually how Marine Hose case started. That's really interesting. Thanks for sharing. 
So the first episode or first topic we have planned for today is extradition. So extraditing an individual from another country to the U.S. is a political process that usually requires an extradition treaty. It requires dual criminality. So the foreign country must also treat the individual's alleged conduct as a criminal offense and also willingness on the part of the other country to extradite the individual. And so I know one of the former executives of Parker ITR involved in the Marine Hose conspiracy actually had uh, was extradited, and that was the first extradition by the DOJ Antitrust Division for criminal violation of the Sherman Act. But Jim, I know one of your your client was actually also tried to escape jurisdiction. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened with that? Uh, my client, uh, Mr. Hioki, attended the Marine Hose, let's call it a cartel meeting in Houston. Uh, he had to travel uh, the day after the meeting. So he got in an airplane and flew to Phoenix for his next business meeting. When he landed, he got about 35 text messages, five phone calls from his secretary from Bridgestone, where he worked in Japan. They're looking for you. And then he figured out by they meant FBI. So he asked his uh, business partner, hey, can we stop at the uh, Starbucks? And uh, I need to make a couple of phone calls. So in the Starbucks, um, he opened his briefcase and took out all of the documents he had used uh, in the, let's call it the cartel meeting, and they disappeared. And then he figured out that staying in the United States would be a bad idea because he had heard about, um, you know, the FBI and the DOJ. So he called Bridgestone to say, I need to get out of Phoenix. And a couple hours later, they uh, gave him some options. His choices were to um, get in a car, rent a car, and drive to Mexico City which seemed pretty daunting for a guy who doesn't have a driver's license and was sort of challenged by it all. Or he could fly quickly from Phoenix to San Francisco and then San Francisco to Narita in Japan. Uh, he chose the airplane version. Uh, he never actually made it into the terminal, however, because he was uh, arrested on the tarmac uh, they seized his phone and saw all these text messages. So then he spent a substantial portion of time in the custody of the FBI and the DOJ from San Francisco. He should have gone to Mexico City. That sounds like he picked the wrong option. Mark, were you, uh, since you were coordinating everything on the ground in Houston, uh, were you at all involved in coordinating Mr. Hioki's arrest? Uh, do you remember anything about that incident? Sure. Yeah, it, I was down in Houston, and um, I was in the next room where the, the the meeting was taking place. The FBI had set up a camera, and, and uh, unbeknownst to the guys in the meeting, we there were a bunch of prosecutors in the next room listening with headphones on. Uh, Mr. Hioki. Well, we expected him to show up and he was invited. I think, uh, I'm not sure, I don't think he was actually in the meeting, but he had sent his, uh, sent his affirmation, as I recall, to the leader of the group, Peter Whittle, to say that he was going to go along with whatever the group had decided. And that was enough to, to certainly send us after him in the way that uh, the gym has, has described. And so it really was kind of you know, the, the meeting was day one, day two. That was when all of the, the search warrants and the arrests started to take place. And he was on the run. And we were we were talking to the agents throughout the day to try to find out where is he? Where is he going? Oh, we we, we found out he's in Phoenix. We, they went to Phoenix. He's gone. Where did he go now? Well, he, he got on a flight to San Francisco. So we were definitely keeping tabs through the agents to try to try to track him down before he left the country, because we knew that once if he had left the country, then it was going to be extremely hard for the DOJ to ever get uh, jurisdiction over him again. That definitely makes sense. And 
uh, probably would have ended up in a similar situation to Mr. Piscioti, uh, who was actually arrested in June 2013 in Germany during a layover he had in Frankfurt while traveling from Nigeria back to Italy as background for our listeners who might not be familiar with that. And then Germany ultimately agreed to extradite him to the United States. And so that was that first extradition by the DOJ Antitrust Division. Mark, do you have any thoughts on why the Marine Hose Cartel case was the first time we saw extradition for a criminal violation of the Sherman Act? Well, it, it's something that um, the DOJ had been working towards for, for many, many years. And um, unfortunately for Mr. Pichotti, I think it was just the timing had had lined up in, in a way that um, where it actually worked out in the DOJ's favor there. Before that, there had been people, a number of people who were fugitives who ended up uh, on a red notice and then who ended up getting arrested in places like, you know, Colombia or India. And then those were not their home countries, but they were traveling there. They ended up being detained. And because those countries didn't have strong extradition treaties, they were not extradited to the U.S. They were detained for several weeks in, in a Colombian jail, let's say, which had to be its own, you know, kind of a hell and punishment for sure, but it never actually worked out. So there were these kind of attempts that took place before Pashodi, but by the time Pashodi gets to Germany, that's a country where there's going to be, you know, enough of a, um, a hook in terms of bid rigging being a criminal violation in Germany, where you've got dual criminality such that it made extradition feasible. How has your advice to clients regarding the threat of extradition changed since the Marine Hose Cartel investigation and since seeing this first extradition for a Sherman Act case? My advice is don't travel. So when I was a prosecutor like Mark, uh, we tried to extradite um, people in the 90s from Japan. And the Japanese Ministry of Justice was pretty clear in saying, this is never going to happen. Unless, of course, the person's from a different country and they happen to be at the airport and then we're happy to get rid of them. So today, I think my advice has always been stay where you live. If you know you're under investigation, you sh your house is awesome. You know, there's plenty of things to do wherever you are. If you decide to get on an airplane, that's your risk. Don't do it. Great. Thank you. So I think it's a good time to move to our second topic, which is trials for individuals and jury verdicts. So Francesco Scaglia and Val Northcutt went to trial on charges of bid rigging, price fixing, and allocating market shares in the Southern District of Florida in October 2008. And then on November 10th, 2008, after 14 days of trial, both of them were found not guilty. So we actually are fortunate enough to have both sides of that trial here today. Before we actually get into the substance of the trial, I understand that there were pre-indictment meetings for some of the individuals in Washington, D.C. Who was involved in those meetings? And can you talk to us about what those were like? In those days, it was pretty standard um, before the uh, you know, before the DOJ would bring an indictment uh, to have a meeting um, and uh, with defense counsel. And uh, <laughs> the DOJ in recent days has got, gotten away from that. And there's, there's quite a bit of uh, debate out there about whether that's a good idea or not. We, at the time, we always thought it was, it was better to hear from defense counsel beforehand and, and hear what their arguments were and have some kind of dialogue. And, uh, and I'll let David Gerger describe his his recollection of his side of that conversation? Well, on one side of the table was me, and on the other side of the table was the committee on committees, and Mark Rossman was sitting right behind the person leading the meeting. And after a while, when it became obvious that the sole purpose of this meeting from their side was, you know, to plead guilty and cooperate, uh, and I said, wait a minute, we, I'm sorry. I thought we were here to have a discussion, not, not to plead guilty. Mark, I remember Mark cracking up uh, in the meeting because that was the end of the meeting. And uh, 
our client was then indicted. Yeah, I have a slightly different recollection of that. I think <laughs> I, I think I had I'd, I had some hopes that you know we might be able to to work out some kind of resolution uh, between my bosses and and David at the time, and I had sort of brokered this meeting and and. And then I realized pretty quickly that this was not a good idea to have this meeting. It was not going to be a productive use of anyone's time. And I do recall the meeting ending with David Gerger kind of slamming his fist to the table and saying, excuse me, I think it's a misunderstanding here. I'm not here to do any deals. And that was, <laughs> that was how the meeting ended. I wasn't at that meeting. I got brought into the case after that by David Gerger since it was going to get indicted down in, in South Florida and he needed local counsel. And I remember I'd never done an antitrust case before. This was my first antitrust case. Now I love doing them uh, with Mark and, and David. And But this was my my first sort of entree to it. And, and I remember David Gerger saying, you know, they think there's a huge cartel. And being from Miami, I said, what, it involves cocaine from Colombia? I don't understand uh, what, what, what you mean by cartel. I thought this was an antitrust case. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget thinking, you know, the jury's going to be with me on this one. They're going to hear cartel and think drugs. They're not going to think uh, price fixing. Mark, I understand that you made a Brady production before trial. Can you tell us about what that included? Can you talk to us about your decision to make that production, how you went about that process, and why you did that in this case in particular? Sure. So, um, you know, the, the, we, we had arrested at the, right after the meeting uh, everybody, pretty much, including the the coordinator of the the cartel, uh, this guy Peter Whittle, and he had been running this this cartel as kind of the the intermediary, so that the companies didn't have to directly speak to each other, and they each paid him a fee, a consulting fee, if you will. Well, anyway, during the course of his interview, he was you know going through a list of the people who had been involved in in the uh, in the cartel over the the many many years, decades, and. And when it came to David and David's client, uh, Mr. Scalia, uh, Scaglia, he, Peter Whittle said that he, he didn't know who he was and, and basically um, didn't know if he had been involved or not. And so the question for us as, as prosecutors was like, we had, we had this in some notes of, of Peter Whittle's interview. Do we disclose that? Do we turn that over as Brady? And, and there was some discussion, you know, and debate about that as I think is normal in prosecutor's office. You, there's a judgment call to be made there. And, um, and fortunately for David and David, I had just read an interview around that time with Dr. J, the great uh, Hall of Fame basketball player. And Dr. J had said in this interview, you know, one of the reasons he, you know, he, he, he developed as a player was when he was on the courts and the streets just playing pickup basketball, he always played as if there was a referee watching. And he always played fair, even if there was no referee. That I think that was the quote: "Play fair, even if there's no referee." I just felt like, you know, this is a judgment call. I think we got to disclose this, and it turned out to be a pretty major tool and piece of evidence that that uh, Gerger and Marcus used to to great uh, success uh, with the jury and uh, in the cross examination of Peter Little. This story you just heard is truly extraordinary, but it is not reasonable to to expect prosecutors to really be thinking and focusing on what could be helpful to the defense. And this is the only time in my 35 years at the bar that I have received a, a envelope in the mail and I opened it up and it said, here is your Brady disclosure. And I don't mean this as a, as a cut on the Justice Department. But this is really an amazing production. Um, and, and, you know, you combine that with the fact that in most trials, um, you learn about who the witnesses are on the eve of trial. And uh, you, you really are at a disadvantage. So hats off to Mark um, for, for his extraordinary fairness. Yeah, just, just to echo that, Natalie, I mean... <clears throat> You know, Mark is a is a obviously great person, and and we've become friends. One of the great things about doing these trials, you, you know, you be, you become brothers and sisters with with your trial partners, and sometimes, very rarely, 
with the other side. And, and this is one of those cases, David Gerger and I became brothers through this trial. And, and same with, with Mark and me as well, which is, which is rare to say about a prosecutor. And that's because, you know, how good of a person he is, but David's right. Like it's, it's crazy that, that this is so rare in our criminal justice system um, and that it is extraordinary. You know, it shouldn't be, of course. And, and uh, part of the problem is so few cases go to trial that prosecutors have forgotten what it means to make Brady disclosures and, and to uh, uh, be fair when the referee isn't watching. And so I think this is, uh, for, for your listeners, a good, a good example of why more cases should go to trial, not only for the experience, but you become, you get some, some of your best friends in life from it. That's such an extraordinary story. Uh, I, I know Mark mentioned that it really had an impact on the trial itself. How did you end up using this production at trial? The theme of the case became uh, that when Peter Whittle was arrested, he was the captain of the team and he knew who was on the field. He knew who his players were. And it, this disclosure allowed us to go through all of the people he remembered being on the team his friends, his enemies, his people who were close to him, who, we, who weren't close to him. And, and uh, Francisco, was not, was, Francesco was not listed until later. And, um, you know, we, we were never going to change the fact that Whittle at trial would say that Francesco was, was part of his squad, but it was critical that that, that uh, they came only later. We did a lot about reasonable doubt in closing, and and I think it is a good lesson what David Gerger says. You know, I think in criminal trials, people forget how important a tool reasonable doubt is, and and oftentimes we we don't talk about it enough in in closing. And both Gerger and myself were public defenders, and it was you know we learned as as public defenders you gotta you know you gotta pound reasonable doubt, and and this was the perfect case for it just with with those notes. Beyond the content of the Brady production, what do you think were some of the key pieces or types of evidence in the Marine Hose Cartel case? Mark mentioned that he had a video of the, uh, the uh, I'll call it the dinner meeting, what, what Jim called the cartel meeting. No, there, and there clearly was a cartel. And the question was, of course, was Francesco part of it? So when you're confronted with that piece of evidence, you can't run away from it. And you have to find a way to embrace it and watch it over and over and over and you know, put it up on, your, on the wall in your room, put the worst piece of evidence there and think of a truthful way to embrace it. And of course, Francesco said very little during this three hour meeting. Um, and so, so that's number one, you have to embrace the video. And we like to say when there's a video or a, or a recording, we like to say, thank goodness there was a recording. Imagine what Peter Whittle would have made up if there hadn't been a recording. Francesco would have been leading the meeting, wouldn't he? So um, you have to deal with, I'll call it the bad evidence. Oh, this this is a great story, Natalie, and and uh, I'll never forget this. So, so one of the great things about working with David Gerger is is how creative he is in trial, and I I learned a lot from him and Mark in trial. So, so this the, the leader of the conspiracy, this guy Peter Whittle, who ends up cooperating, you know, had made millions and millions of dollars over the course of of his career coordinating this conspiracy, but the government was only requiring him to forfeit. Uh, about a hundred thousand dollars, and so D David Gerger had the idea: let's get fake one hundred dollar bills, as many as we can, to to equal the whatever it was nine million he had been paid over the course of his career, and we'll put it under this sheet during closing. And and D David and I, I was going to do the closing, but he was going to start with this five minute intro, and he was going to pull the sheet back from the from the uh, money and show this pile of $9 million and then take 100,000 and put it on the government's table to show that that's all that Whittle had to forfeit. And you know he had this, this huge reason to, to lie to keep all this money and everything else.
I thought it was a great lead up and then unfortunately uh, things went south. Yeah, this is a good pointer for, for the audience because you should hear about things not to do and how you can cause a lawyer to sweat profusely in the middle of trial. I, I still think it was great, even though it got shut down, but I'll let Mark tell the rest of the story. Well, I'll just say that, you know, as you could tell, it was a, from the David Gerger, David Marcus, this was a master class in, in, in trying a case from the defense side. And, and, uh, and as part of that, David Gerger had set up this huge pile of $10 million in fake cash underneath this blanket and, and in the closing, and I knew where this was going. And in fact, I was, uh, I had, David and I had tried a case uh, against each other before back in Texas. And that was where I grew up as a prosecutor in Texas. And in Texas, pretty much anything goes in terms of doing these kinds of using props and, and demonstratives. And I was just sitting there as entertained as the jury. I knew where this was going. It was painful to watch, but it was also entertaining. And I was along for the ride, except for, the judge, Judge Hurley, was making incredibly strong eye contact with me and to the point where I, I had to take note of it. And then I realized that he was, he just was telling me basically I had to object. And I was not going to object because in Texas, no judge would have sustained an objection in a closing like this. And I, after judge kept, the judge kept staring at me, I finally reluctantly rose to my feet. And before I could even get the objection out, Judge Hurley said, sustained, we're going to break, uh, we're going to dismiss the jury. And then he made David take all the money off of the table. David was so, uh, Gerger was so pissed at me, he wouldn't even talk to me. I was trying to apologize to him, uh, you know, during the break. But um, anyway, it didn't matter. You still, you still got the acquittal, but, uh, it was, it was kind of a, a funny moment in the case because I, I literally was along for the ride and was enjoying it as much as anyone else. I think he actually made me pick up the money in front of the jury. So I'm crawling around on the floor <laughs> and, um, you know, that, that, you know, like, like uh, embarrassed. <laughs> so, 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 then, so then I have to get up and start my closing after this, you know, the, this whole thing. But but the jury knew what had happened. And and uh, they, they they loved Gerger from the trial. He's so likable. And, and so they I think they, they felt a little bad about what had happened. And they also knew the point. So so the as nervous as I was to start after that, the jury, you know, the jury was you could tell sort of sort of with Gerger uh, during during what had happened and, and liked the the visual of the uh, $10 million in, in money being cleaned up. It was uh, it was a fun moment. Definitely sounds like it. Another story I'd like to hear from you, Mark, is about recording that video. So we've mentioned that video here and there, but I'd love to hear a little bit more about the, just the process of getting that video and then how you ultimately used it at the trial. Sure. And I'll just say, you know, I appreciate the kind words from my my colleagues. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, I'm probably I might be hold the uh, distinction of being the only prosecutor who's lost a case after having a defendant on tape for three hours in a meeting. Um, their strategy to embrace that tape and, and say, thank goodness for the, the tape was, was really brilliant and effective. Um, so yeah, I mean, we we knew about the meeting uh, because I think you said in your previous episode, Yokohama, uh, it was disclosed that they were cooperating. And so through their cooperation as an amnesty applicant, we under, you know we knew that there was going to be a meeting held at the offshore technology conference in Houston, and and essentially the FBI was able to kind of take over the logistics for the meeting, set it up in this conference room, um, and. Um, and uh, you know, put a, a pinhole in the wall where they could record the whole thing, and um, and so that really became kind of the centerpiece of the case, uh, essentially, because uh, Peter Whittle uh, had laid out the, to start the meeting. He he went off in this kind of preamble of the history of the whole cartel, and, and he started off and basically gave a, a ten minute, twenty minute speech about kind of laying out the whole history. How great was that as prosecutors for us to have? have all that on evidence and and have that be an admission uh, from him and and everybody else was listening and and essentially he he kind of said look you know there's been personnel changes there's been 
some uh, changes to the industry and we need to kind of reaffirm our commitment. Everybody needs to, to reaffirm. And he went around the table and each company, each representative basically said, we're in this, we're going to continue. It's been good. And so, so that was basically the, the, the thrust. And, um, you know, David and David's client uh, who, you know, was new to all of this in terms of attending the meetings. He really didn't say much in the meeting at all. He probably said the least of anyone. Um, and um, and so, you know, I think that was, uh, even though we played the, the tape, you know, um, uh, it, re it really sort of became clear that, you know, of anyone who was in the meeting, he had the least to say. Um, uh, and so, that was one of the that was one of the things that I think uh, David and David were able to to really uh, exploit and highlight really well. By the time uh, Francesco took the stand, he kind of said, "Look, I didn't know what this was about. I was told there was a meeting. I went along with them, but I, until I went in there, I didn't really grasp what was what was happening." And um, and I think the jury, you know, the jury found that uh, at the end of the day, found that compelling. Um, the other defendant, uh, Mr. Northcutt, he he wasn't in the meeting. He wasn't at the um, he wasn't at that meeting, and so that was one of the challenges. Also, the fact that he wasn't actually in in the meeting and he wasn't on the tape. So you mentioned that Francesco actually testified himself. So maybe David Gerger and David Marcus, I'd love to hear kind of what went into that decision to let him testify and what his testimony actually looked like, the kind of impact it had on the case. Just so everybody knows, Francesco was this young, energetic, charismatic client. I'm sure Gerger would agree with me. We've never had a client like this before. He, he's one of a kind. And when we would meet with him, he would he would sort of say in his Italian way um, how he had nothing to do with this. And, and um, to, so we did these focus groups and, you know, this is a wonderful example. We, we wanted to prepare and see how they, how we could get him ready to testify. And our jury consultant, who was just wonderful, uh, Robert Hirshhorn, Robert told us, don't prepare him. No more preparation for Francesco. We need him to be him. If you prepare him, it's going to go bad. You just need to let him be. And I mean, you can imagine we were having a heart attack. What do you mean we can't prepare our client to testify? And Hershorn was adamant that he has to be authentic. And if he was authentic, uh, he would charm both the jury and the judge. And I'll turn it over to Gerger for how he charmed both the jury and the judge in, in a truly authentic way on the stand. But it was um, one of the most nerve-wracking experiences uh, of my career to put somebody on without without real uh without there was no script there was no uh binder with documents that we were going to go none of, nothing that you typically see and so I'll turn it over to Gerger for the for the moment in court that that we uh, the story we love to tell well and and before that there was a concern that if some if a witness who does not speak english well appears uh smooth on direct because he's practiced and, and then halting or uncrossed because he doesn't understand the, the questions that are being asked, that that would be a bad appearance. And David is right. There was no uh, preparation. And so he, our client was equally comfortable or uncomfortable with English, both during the direct and the cross. And, and, and that was, uh, that turned out, it turned out well. You know, the decision to call a client is, there's no rule book for that, except to say it shifts the burden of proof a bit to the defense. But because of the tape recording, the decision was early on, he would testify. And um, plus knowing him as a person, he was so earnest. So I don't know which story David is thinking of, but, but um, you know, oh, come on, the crazy boy story, the crazy boy story. Well, okay, so why didn't you leave the meeting? And he said, and I won't make fun of his English because it was quite uh, Italian. He said, I should have leaved, I should have leaved. Well, yeah, I know, but why didn't you leave? This is on direct. I should have. And then I said, I know, but why? We know you should have. Why didn't you leave? And he looks at the judge and he says, Mr. Judge, I love David. 
But I tell him three times I should have left. Should I jump on the table like a crazy boy um, during the meeting? I should have left. So, you know, that's an example. And then during cross, you know, it was very difficult. And uh, I remember Mark was trying to make the point that our client was, uh, has some sort of authority, you know, over this at the company. And uh, I think at one point said that, that our client was even a boss or a leader or something like that. And in, in the typical earnest testimony, our client said, Mr. Rossman, I'm the boss? Yes. Well, then you owe me a lot of money. This other guy got paid more than me. I have to sweep the floor. He's drinking limoncello at the bar and playing golf. And then he looks at the judge and he says, Mr. Judge, Mr. Rossman owes me a lot of money if I'm the boss. And I mean, this is how it went. And it, it must have been very difficult. And I'll just add to that, Natalie, you know, we should mention the judge, David Gerger. It was Judge Daniel Hurley in West Palm Beach. And he was so wonderful to both sides, really took an interest in the case, um, was was fascinated by the legal issues, the factual issues. And when all of this was happening, I think he liked our client as well. And when all of this was happening, he he was getting a kick out of it, but he had to keep a straight poker face. And he was trying so hard not to laugh when the client would turn to him and say, judge, you know, what am I supposed to do? Am I a crazy boy? And Judge Hurley was trying so hard not to laugh. It, it, and the jury was laughing, of course, with Francesco. But Judge Hurley was was a wonderful was a wonderful judge in this case and is a wonderful judge. Yeah, true. Thanks for sharing all these great stories. I'm sure we could continue hearing them for a long time, but I would like to move on to our last topic before we run out of time, which is individual accountability. So I'd love to hear how the Marine Hose Cartel cases contributed, contributed to your views on individual accountability in criminal antitrust cases. Jim, maybe we could start with you on this one. Uh, how did you see your client impacted by the results of the Marine Hose Cartel case? Mr. Hioki learned the lesson that Mark mentioned a while ago about Dr. J and making sure you pay attention who's going to be the referee. He, um, he had an antitrust problem. We had our pitch meeting with Mark and explained why um, he shouldn't go to jail and we cut what was a fair deal for him. But he forgot a huge lesson, which is that uh, if you spend a lifetime of other criminal behavior and you don't tell anybody about that, including your defense attorney, somebody else might. And he forgot who else was paying attention. So he ended up um, spending a substantial portion of his um, time in the United States in prison. And so he probably learned the lesson more than anybody that Mark talked about, which is you have to tell the truth all the way through, even if it's painful. And, and he acknowledges today and that that was his biggest mistake, was to not really think through what it means to tell the truth and be transparent and also to think about who else is paying attention. So he left himself exposed. Uh, he also... Um, I think ended up spending almost two and a half years in the United States. Um, that's before he went to prison because uh, Mark did a good job of getting him on um, what was ended up being sort of a home detention kind of arrangement. Um, in some respects, he, he did benefit during that time period in the United States. This is all pre-prison because he was unable to work and super bored. So he decided to exercise and he exercised a lot and he became a marathon runner. And if you didn't know it, uh, Mr. Hioki might've been the first of very few uh, LA marathon participants that completed two marathons, both wearing an ankle monitor. So he became quite, uh, White killed when he went to prison. His individual accountability is that he um, improved his English. He did a lot of work as a mini lawyer. He spent a fair amount of time correcting me on the nuances of the antitrust laws. 
but overall he paid a very big price. And it's a weird thing. Like we've all represented um, folks or prosecuted folks from Japan that were part of a, a culture, if you will, of just knowing your competitors and, and managing your businesses. Um, he paid a big price for that. I, I'm not even sure he knew what he was doing was right or wrong. It was just part of a thing that he did. But if you looked at his history, I think everybody should take away that you got to manage what you believe is right and wrong. And he knew. And that is the lesson of it all for him and many others. He was actually the first defendant to plead guilty to SCPA charges in addition to antitrust allegations. Do you have anything to add about what went into that or how that affected what, how, what he ended up being accountable for? Yeah, we had our pitch meeting with Mark on the antitrust stuff and, and we had arranged an outcome, but by failing to disclose a, a lifetime of um, small bribery payments, Mark actually disappeared from the story and it moved to the criminal division. And again, that, that's the lesson here for any individual defendant. Um, you got to think, who's your enemy? And it wasn't the DOJ, which he thought was the enemy. It was the people that he worked with. And they caused him to pay a much bigger price than just about everybody else in this story. We've talked about Francesco Scalia as if it's a happy story. But of course, uh, he spent 17 months in the United States. Thankfully, the government did not move for his detention. Um, but that was a, a big impact on his life. He didn't live here. He was not familiar with the United States. So, so that, that's a, a big, big cost on his life. And to pick up on Jim's point about being honest, Peter Whittle, it turns out, and I don't think that Mark Rossman knew this, but Whittle, of course, had pled guilty in, uh, in England. That was part of, of his agreement. But I think the part that Mark might not have known is during our very trial, he had his lawyers going to court in London to reduce his sentence by, by claiming to the court in England that he had not done anything that was so bad. And by sheer chance, this was coming up right during our trial. And in fact, the day that Whittle took the stand in our trial in, in Florida, Whittle's lawyers in London were petitioning for a reduction in his sentence. And we found out about this and sent someone to the court. And they were emailing us the things that his lawyer was saying in London, which contradicted what he, you know, what he was saying here. And uh, Mark, I assume that was a surprise and um, that was effective as well. But for sort of as far as this guy's acceptance of accountability, it was shady. David and David, as long as we're on the topics of things you didn't know, there are many reasons why Mr. Hioki never testified in, in your trial. But one of the statements that I'm sure you got from Mark and Brady was they asked him, you know, what they what Mr. Hioki knew about your client. And he gave a pretty simple one word answer. Who? No idea who your guy was, not a clue. In this trial, what was interesting is most of the, you know, the, the players uh, involved ended up pleading guilty and they were at a pretty high level bosses and, and vice presidents and whatnot. And Peter Whittle, the coordinator, pled guilty as well. And so the main people that were responsible were held accountable. And I think one of the interesting takeaways for the DOJ here is that, you know, this trial was against two guys who were sort of subordinates and were beneath the people who had pled guilty. And one of the dynamics that was difficult, in addition to all the great lawyering and points that have been brought out by David and David, was that, you know, we had the bosses testifying against these subordinates. And that is a very tough dynamic, I think, for the jury, because at the end of the day, the jury, I think, looked at this and said, you know, DOJ, you got the, you got the main players here. Why do you need to go after the guys who were 
you know, not paid as much <laughs> or, uh, you know, the, the ones who were clearly less involved. And so that was a dynamic in terms of individual accountability that I think, you know, DOJ uh, takes into account and, and, and really should, you know, and this is an example of why it's so important because you hold the main people involved accountable, but after that, it can be, it can be a little bit of a, a question mark. And, and you know, Mark, I, I'm not sure it's such a good lesson. I, I'm not sure the antitrust division remembers the lesson because they've gotten so aggressive with who they're going after again. And, and, and what Jim talked about with mens rea, you know, even though it's not an element of the offense, jurors want us understand that these folks are bad people who, who understood what they were doing was wrong. If, and I shouldn't say bad people, but understood what they were doing was wrong. Most of the antitrust defendants that we see are really good people who did not understand what they were doing was wrong. That's that's why I love defending these cases so much. Our clients are really, really good people and in many cases had no idea what they're doing is wrong. And the antitrust division now is 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 trying to expand who they're going after in these no poach cases, for example, where where people had have no clue. Uh, that that they can't do that. So so I wish they would remember the lessons that both Jim and Mark talk about. I don't I don't think they do. Thank you so much for sharing all of this. I just have one final wrap up question for all of you. I was hoping each of you could share just your favorite memory or lesson from the Marine Hose cartel cases, or just a takeaway on why you think we're still talking about these cases over a decade later. My favorite memory of all of it was meeting Mr. Hioki's wife. It showed me that there was much more to our job as defense attorneys than just this issue of right or wrong or Brady or jury instructions or anything. It was an impactful time to the point where part of our job at Kirkland was helping her get a job so she could spend these years in the United States and helping her go from, you know, LA where it was, you know, pre-detention time period to, to getting her a job and helping her find a job that was closer to Lompoc, California, which housed Mr. Hioki for his nearly two years in jail. That made a big difference to how I think about all of this. It's much more sensitive than prosecutors think, you know, the issues of individual accountability and what they think and who comes along for the ride. That was my big takeaway. You know, it's such a great, great point, Jim. And and a lot of what we do is is on the individual side and getting to know our clients and fighting for them and their families. Um, and, and I do think a lot of times that's lost on, on the other side. I don't think it was in this case. I think Mark, because of what we talked about, you know, it wasn't lost on him, but many times it is. Um, you know, I think we're still talking about this case all these years later, Natalie, because it's, it's so fascinating, the, the individual stories and, and my takeaway is, you know, we should be trying more cases. And, and it's something I like to talk about a lot. I, I think we should be trying them for our clients, but also, I mean, look at what happened out of this case. I mean, the friendships and the brotherhood that we came out of it, um, there's, there's nothing like it. And so to me, um, you know, we, we didn't go to law school to sort of uh, you know, just just sit in our office and review documents our whole life. The, the point of it is to, is to uh, have some fun and fight for some people. And and um, and, and out of that, I, I became uh, brothers with Mark and David. So I'm very thankful for this case. Yeah, it, what we do is hard. And, um, you know, but it's not just about us. And so I'll echo what, what David Marcus and Mark have said. This is the case in which uh, we really were, were very gratified to be able to help our client. Um, it takes a lot of luck for that to happen. A wonderful scholarly judge, a fair prosecutor. Frankly, those things may have more to do with the outcome than the defense lawyer, but um, 
this is the case in which I got to know my friend David Marcus, and we're in touch to this day. And I developed a very healthy respect and admiration for Mark Rossman. And so those relationships are what I remember most. Yeah, I'll just I'll just echo those comments and and just say I think it's a case that we're still talking about because there were so many uh, firsts and unusual things about it and um, you know and you've touched on many of these, Natalie with expedition and and uh, and you know Jim's client what what he went through and um, and and everything you know we've touched on and more we could we could continue talking about this the guys pleading in the UK. And the U.S., the, the U.K. nationals pleading in the U.K. for the very first time, um, you know. So there were so many firsts about the case that I think that's one reason why uh, you know we're talking about it today, and probably will continue, you know, talking about it and studying this case. That concludes episode two of Undercurrents Unveiled. Please join us for our next episode: Restitution and Repair: Civil Actions for Victims of the Marine Hose Cartel when we'll discuss the follow-on civil action and efforts to seek restitution and compensation for those affected by the cartel's behavior. Thank you for listening to this episode of Undercurrents Unveiled, the Marine Hose Cartel Antitrust Odyssey. It is produced and shared by the NYSBA's Antitrust Law Section. The opinions expressed by the participants in this podcast are their own and do not necessarily represent their employer or other organizations. If you liked what you heard or would like to become a member of the NYSBA, please check out what the antitrust section has to offer at nysba.org slash committees slash antitrust dash law dash section.